This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, we're in the series Step Monsters. In this final episode of the series where I detail cases of bad step-parents, I'll tell you about a case of an abusive stepfather who received his comeuppance when his stepchildren turned on him. Were they justified in their actions, or was this a case of evil stepkids? This is the story of Joshua and Jerome Ellis and the murder of Neil Tully. Baby-faced Jerome Ellis looked younger than his 14 years. With his large dark eyes and mop of brown hair, he could pass for about 12 years old. But in his 14 short years, he'd witnessed a lifetime of alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, and family dysfunction. Even so, his teachers and neighbors thought him affable and polite and described him as a promising young man. Jerome's parents, Gary and Marie Ellis, had married in 1990. Their first son, Joshua, was nine years Jerome Sr. Jerome looked up to his big brother, who aspired to become a police officer or a soldier. Their father was an alcoholic, and their parents fought bitterly over his drinking and money. Gary and Marie split up when Jerome and Joshua were still little boys. It would be Marie that would move out while the boys remained living with their father. Jerome took on the role of caretaker for his father after the split. He would always be the type of boy who wanted to be helpful and tried his best to make life easier for his family. Joshua and his father Gary never got along. Gary ridiculed his older son's ambitions, telling him he wasn't cut out to join the army or police force. Josh was a sensitive young man and his father's ridicule cut him to the core. He became depressed as he reached his teen years and retreated into himself. At the age of 16, Josh decided he could no longer abide living with his father and went to live with his mother in Belfield, Surrey, located an hour southwest of London. Josh completed high school, but things at his mother's home began to go south when she entered into a relationship with a man named Neil Tully. Tully and Marie moved in together and had three daughters in quick succession. Tully wasn't happy when Marie's teenage son came to live with him, but Josh was given a room in the attic and kept mostly to himself. After graduating high school, Josh tired of the situation at his mother's house where he felt like an intruder. His stepfather treated him as a burden and said it was time he got a job and got out of the house. Josh wanted to continue with his schooling, but that wasn't acceptable to Tully. So in 2010, Josh moved back to his father's home and enrolled in college. He continued to suffer with depression and isolated himself even more, but his father didn't address it except to criticize him for his lack of motivation. He continued to ridicule his son's plans to become a police officer, and they argued frequently. After less than a year at his father's house, Josh once again decided to return to live with his mother. By this time, his depression had worsened, and he became a virtual recluse in the attic of his mother's home. Meanwhile, Jerome missed his older brother terribly and worried about him when he couldn't be around to cheer him up. He idolized his older brother and knew that he was unhappy. After Josh moved back to his mother's home, 
Jerome secretly began sneaking out of the house to visit him and his mother. When his father found out about this in late January of 2012, he became angry and kicked Jerome out of the house. When 11-year-old Jerome showed up on his mother's doorstep, she and Josh were happy to see him and welcomed him in immediately. But their stepfather, Neil Tully, was against it. He told Marie that the house was too crowded as it was, and they fought about it, but ultimately Jerome was allowed to stay. Jerome was enrolled in Georgia Abbott Secondary School in Guilford. His school attendance records were excellent, and he was described as a very intelligent boy. However, his teachers would report that he often came to school hungry and without lunch or money. They would take a collection to provide him with a lunch and sometimes sent him home with donated clothes, as his were often dirty and threadbare. School staff noted in their records that Jerome Ellis was being neglected at home and exhibited, quote, emotional deprivation, unquote, due to this neglect. His mother and Tolly's home was visited by social workers who described it as dirty and cluttered. It was also reported that Jerome acted as a caretaker to his mother and siblings, and his stepfather was often drunk and aggressive. Jerome's very close bond with his older brother Joshua was also noted. We need to talk a little bit more about Josh and Jerome Ellis' family situation at this time. Their biological father, Gary Ellis, loved his sons, but had an alcohol abuse problem. His younger son, Jerome, had become the caretaker for his dad when he lived alone with him. This is somewhat characteristic of children who grow up with alcoholic parents. Their childhoods are often curtailed, and children living in this type of a situation may either act out rebelliously and end up with their own drug and alcohol problem, or take on the adult role in the home in order to keep the situation from descending into complete chaos. Children of alcoholics, especially if there is not a sober adult living in the home, may be the ones who make sure the alcoholic parent eats regularly, sobers up enough to show up for work, and covers for their parent with employers and other authority figures. This was the role that Jerome took on in his family. Joshua, although the much older sibling, couldn't handle the situation, either because he was already experiencing depression as a child or because his emotional sensitivity resulted in him experiencing bouts of anxiety and depression. In either case, while he desired to complete college, start a career, and help his mother financially, he didn't have the emotional resources to successfully navigate himself out of his chaotic home life. Instead, he withdrew mentally and emotionally. Marie loved her children as well, but she was now raising her adult son, teenage son, and three very young daughters, and her energy was sapped. Her relationship with Neil Tolley had already been fragile before the boys moved in. Tolley also had a problem with alcohol and was a mean drunk. Marie was constantly intervening between Tolley and the children when he became angry and aggressive. Neil Tolley, who was in his 50s, worked as a builder and a painter. His drunken, angry outbursts had resulted in a minor police record even before meeting Marie. After the home became crowded, and he and Marie began having arguments about the children, things took a much worse turn. There was no bedroom available for Jerome when he moved in, 
so he was sleeping on the living room sofa. One night, he heard Tolly yelling at his mother in the hallway. When the argument became louder and more violent, Jerome sat up and saw his stepfather's hands wrapped around his mother's throat, strangling her. Jerome yelled for his brother, who ran downstairs. Tolly let go of Marie, but only after all the children had witnessed this terrifying abuse toward their mother. Tolly continued to drink and act abusively towards Marie and the children over the following months. It finally came to a head one night when an argument again broke out in the home. This time, Tolly's rage was directed at Josh. As he'd done more than once, Tolly threatened to kill his stepson. But this time, he went out to the garden shed and grabbed an axe. Returning to the house, he swung the axe at Josh in front of Jerome and Marie. Josh managed to block the axe from hitting him. Marie then grabbed the axe handle and pulled it away from the drunk man's hands, passing it to Josh, who ran out of the house with the weapon. They called the police, and Tully was arrested. Marie also took out an order of protection against Tully. But when the case went before the court, Tully was acquitted of the charge. Once released from jail, he begged Marie to let him return home, and she finally relented, but at first told him that he could only sleep in the shed. Eventually, he worked his way back into the home, but Marie would not let him into the bedroom. He began sleeping on the sofa. Tolly continued to drink and act out aggressively towards the family. Perhaps he felt invincible because he had not faced any real consequences after attempting to murder his stepson, because he now became even more belligerent towards everyone in the family. The situation grew even more tense and threatening. It would reach a flashpoint on August 12, 2013, and end in a grisly murder. Neil Tully was arrested and tried for the attempted murder of his stepson Josh in 2012, but was acquitted. When he first came home, he acted contrite and even complied when Marie made him sleep outside of the house in the shed. Finally, he was let back into the house, but not back into their bedroom. From then on, Neil Tully slept on the sofa in the living room. But Tully didn't turn over a new leaf, even with these new sleeping arrangements. He continued to drink and rail against the fact that Jerome had been allowed to move into their already crowded home. He hadn't wanted Josh living there, and then having his second, now 13-year-old stepson as another person under their roof irked him to no end. Tully's drinking led him to become angry and then verbally abusive. If he didn't pass out from the booze, he would begin threatening physical harm to everyone in the family, including his own daughters. Everyone walked on eggshells when Tully was home, and tried to appease him or just stay out of his way. On August 12, 2013, two days after Jerome marked his 14th birthday, an argument once again broke out in the home. Tully began yelling at Marie, and she'd had enough. She yelled back at her common-law husband, which infuriated him. Tully sprang up and announced that he was going to the shed to, quote, get his axe, unquote. Marie ran to her bedroom and locked the door. Jerome witnessed this and ran up the stairs to the attic to call his older brother for help. Josh was locked in his room as usual, playing on his Xbox. Tully hadn't come back into the house, and with Marie locked in her room, everything had quieted downstairs. However, both Jerome and Josh knew from past history that this was just the quiet before the storm. Tully would be back, probably more drunk, and would start fighting with Marie again, 
At this point, Josh told his little brother, we have to get him. Jerome understood this to mean that they had to get rid of their stepfather. It was the only option they had, Jerome would later say. They were all in danger. Tolly wasn't just a threat to him and his brother, but also to his mother and his sisters. Joshua then made it clear. He told Jerome they had to kill their stepfather before he killed them all. Josh and Jerome Ellis had concluded that their stepfather would kill their mother and everyone else, including them, if his behavior continued to go unchecked. On the evening of August 12th, they went downstairs where Tully was falling asleep on the living room sofa after having threatened their mother earlier that day with an axe. The boys quietly entered the kitchen, where they pulled two large kitchen knives out of a drawer. They crept into the living room and stood over Tully as he dozed on the sofa. Then they attacked their stepfather with the knives, stabbing him repeatedly. In total, Tolly was stabbed over 60 times. Josh and Jerome then fled the house. In the early morning hours of August 13th, they hid the bags with the bloody knives in a nearby Riverside Nature Reserve. Once the deed was done, the Ellis brothers didn't have much of a plan. Initially, they intended to kill themselves in the nearby woods, but they found they couldn't go through with it. Instead, they hid out in the woods, sleeping on the ground near a river. Back at home, Marie woke up and noticed the eerie silence. She usually woke before the children, but if nothing else, she could normally hear Neil shuffling about. There was no sound as she threw on her robe and made her way to the living room. What she found there was a gruesome sight. Neil Tolley lay still sprawled on the couch, drenched in blood from his head to his feet. He had been stabbed so many times near the neck that he was nearly decapitated. It's possible that Marie was in shock, or perhaps she knew that something like this was inevitable. But she didn't grow hysterical or even react much at all. She called her mother-in-law, Patricia Ellis, who lived nearby, and told her that Neil had been stabbed to death. Patricia asked if she'd called 999. Marie said no, there was no need. Tully was already dead. Patricia went to the Ellis home and knocked on the door. There were still no ambulances or police cars at the scene, which was surprising to her. It took Marie a little while to come to the door, and when she finally opened up, Patricia helped her take her three little girls out of the house. Marie finally called the police about an hour after first finding Neil's body. When authorities arrived, they discovered the body covered in stab wounds. Most were near the neck. His jugular vein had been severed, which would have caused him to bleed out quickly. The head was almost completely detached from the body due to the number of stabs to the neck area. There were also 40 stab wounds to his back and many wounds on his forearms, which may have been defensive wounds, although it didn't seem he'd been able to put up much of a fight. Whether this was because he had been too groggy and or inebriated, or because the first stab wounds had been nearly fatal, was unknown. Marie must have immediately realized that at least one of her sons had to be responsible for the attack on Tully. They were missing, but where they had gone, she could not say. 
Two days after Neil Tully's body was found stabbed to death in his front room, a church bell ringer arrived at St. Peter's Church in Old Woking. The church was located on the outskirts of town near the woods. Early that morning, he saw two dirty and disheveled boys standing outside in back of the church. The bell ringer asked them what they were doing there and if they needed help. Jerome answered, We're killers, and confessed to the stranger what they had done. The police were summoned, and the Ellis brothers were transported to the police station to be questioned. Old Woking is located about an hour and a half away on foot from Bellfields. The Ellis brothers could have walked there while hidden from view by taking a sparsely populated route that was mostly fields and woods. At the police station, it didn't take long for Jerome and Joshua Ellis to confess to the murder of their stepfather. Joshua said that Tolley had been abusive and, quote, we couldn't take it any longer, unquote. Jerome added that they were scared of what he would do to the entire family and felt the only way to protect themselves, their mother and sisters, was to kill him. The two were charged with the murder of Neil Tully. Joshua Ellis, at age 22, was charged as an adult. But the public questioned how Jerome, barely 14, would be tried. The decision was made to also try the teen as an adult, which was a surprise to some and an outrage to others. Both Joshua and Jerome Ellis were charged with murder, and both were to be tried as adults at Guilford Crown Court. The prosecutor, Philip Katz, said that the attack was planned, and although it might not have been a good or sensible one, both of the eldest brothers made the decision to kill Neil Tully. The eldest brother's defense claimed that they had suffered from a, quote, loss of control at the time of the attack on Tully. Attorney Justin Rouse would defend Josh, and Mark Wyeth was assigned to defend Jerome at trial. The prosecutor pointed out that Neil Tully was asleep or nearly asleep when the attack occurred. He told the jury there was, quote, no question these two defendants were not acting in self-defense, unquote. He said that the evidence pointed not to a loss of control by the Ellis brothers, but to a well-planned and thought-out decision. Defending Joshua Ellis, Rouse opened by saying, The seeds of what happened in August 2013 may have been planted the year before, when Neil Tully threatened to kill Joshua and swung at him with an axe. He told the jury that Tully had been tried for that crime, but there had been no consequences. Tully had been acquitted and returned home to continue terrorizing his family. The defense would point to the fact that both of the Ellis brothers had been under a great deal of stress living in a dysfunctional and violent home. Rouse would point out that Joshua had not only been traumatized by Tully's attempt on his life, but was also suffering from severe depression. He lived as a virtual recluse, Rouse said, and had become obese and withdrawn while living with his mother and Tully. Rouse also said, We've seen a series of occasions when Neil Tully was brought to account by the authorities. Do you really think they were the only occasions when he used violence? Do you think that they were the only occasions when he was abusive to Marie and the children? This was the climate that Josh was brought up in, a climate of fear and dread. Joshua, he said, was a gentle giant. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He was attacked and traumatized. He was depressed and isolated. And that's what led to that night, Rouse concluded. (laughs) 
As for Jerome, attorney Mark Wyeth said that he'd also been traumatized by witnessing Tully's attack on his brother and later his mother when her life had also been threatened. His teachers were called to testify that Jerome had been showing signs of emotional distress at school. He was often lethargic as if he had not slept and frequently went hungry. Jerome took the stand and told of the night he'd witnessed Neil Tully threaten to get the axe and kill his mother during a fight they were having. He was terrified and ran to his brother's room. That's when Josh said, quote, We had to kill him. I saw that as the only option because he was a threat to everyone in my family, including me, my brother, my mom, and even his own children, Jerome told the court. In April 2014, the jury found Joshua Ellis guilty of the murder of Neil Tully. At his sentencing, Judge Christopher Critchlow told him, quote, It was your decision to kill him. You told your brother what you were going to do, and tragically, he chose to assist you, unquote. He said that Joshua made the deliberate attempt to kill Tully. He sentenced Joshua Ellis to a 14-year minimum prison sentence. The jury found Jerome Ellis guilty not of murder, but of the lesser charge of manslaughter. The judge stated at his sentencing that it wasn't clear who was responsible for what specific acts during the attack. He said it was possible that his older brother was, quote, more responsible, but he couldn't be sure. However, he said that Joshua, quote, used the knife and you knew what you were doing, unquote. The judge conceded that there was also mitigating circumstances as Jerome was living in an abusive environment and suffered neglect. I'm mindful of the fact that you did not have a good parent or good parenting, Critchlow said. He characterized Jerome's mother as lazy, preferring to watch television instead of caring for her children. In the judge's opinion, the attack was spontaneous and not premeditated. He also believed that Jerome never would have, quote, gone and done what you did, but for your brother coming into your room that night, unquote. Jerome Ellis, 14 years old, was sentenced to six years in detention. He was released by the age of 19 and was given a new identity. He now lives as a free man. There was much debate in the media and by the community about a 13-year-old being tried as an adult. As horrendous and grisly as the crime was, many felt sympathy for the Ellis brothers when they learned about the circumstances of their home life. A filmmaker named Nick Holt covered the Ellis brothers' case as part of a documentary for Channel 4 titled The Murder Trial. While working on that project, he was shocked to learn that in England and Wales, the court sets the age of criminal responsibility for children at 10 years old. To open up the dialogue in his country about the trying of even pre-adolescent children as adults, Holt produced and directed a fictional take on the Ellis Brothers' crime. His film, titled Responsible Child, told a story that closely resembled the details of the Ellis Brothers' crime and trial. In the film, 12-year-old Ray, played by actor Billy Barrett, and his 23-year-old brother Nathan, played by James Tarpey, are tried for murder after stabbing to death their mother's partner. The stepfather in the film also threatened the older brother with an axe and is killed while sleeping on the sofa. Holt said he wanted to spark a wider debate to ask if children can possess the intellect and emotional maturity to be tried and convicted in adult court. He said responsible child's character Ray 
puts the spotlight on children who kill as a response to abuse. There are a lot of children like Ray going through the system, and there have been throughout the last decade, Holt told The Sun Online last year. We're putting Ray in living rooms around the country, and it will be about whether viewers condemn him as a murderer or engage in the wider context of what this boy has been through. Holt was in touch with Jerome Ellis while working on the film. Of him, Holt said, he's very much an adult now. He said he was very like the fictional Ray. He doesn't articulate much, Holt said. He holds a lot in and keeps his cards close to his chest. Responsible Child aired on BBC Two in December of 2019. So what do you think? How young is too young to be held responsible for murder? What types of mitigating circumstances can be considered when trying a child for murder? Should the parents face any consequences when such a crime occurs? Do you think Joshua Ellis planned the murder and used his younger brother as a gullible accomplice? Or do you think it was a spontaneous and unpremeditated attack committed under extreme fear? To share your thoughts, you can join our Facebook group. Just look for the Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page and join the conversation. I want to take a moment to thank all of you who have become Patreon members. It really blows me away how wonderful and generous my listeners are, especially during this challenging time. As a big thank you, I'm putting together some special surprises for you all. We've got some plans for merchandise in the works, some really fun things. We'll be keeping you updated on Patreon as well as on the Facebook page. Thanks. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, and it will also wrap up the series Step Monsters. I'll be back next week with a whole new series, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're subscribing, don't forget to add my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, to your playlist. Two new episodes are out this month on that podcast. In the first, I and my special guest, Brianna for Murder Dictionary podcast, talk about the number one rated true crime documentary right now, The Tiger King. The second episode this month drops this week. In that episode, a whole who's who of true crime experts give you their top recommendations of what to watch, listen to, and read while you're sheltering in place. The best of the best of true crime recommendations. I've included a link in the show notes to find and subscribe to Let's Talk About True Crime. Finally, just a reminder that you can now find all episodes of Once Upon a Crime on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel by looking up Once Upon a Crime Podcast or clicking on the link in the show notes. Once there, you can listen to episodes, see recaps of some of our episodes in the series, and share with others. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.